This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is sponsored by the Union of British Columbia Performers. UBCP is an autonomous branch of the Alliance of Canadian Cinema, Television, and Radio Artists. For more about UBCP Actra, visit ubcp.com. That's ubcp.com. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart of the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work, capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Furminger, and today I'm delighted, I'm chuffed, I'm downright giddy to welcome Mr. Brent Butt to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. You'd be forgiven for not associating Mr. Brent Butt with Vancouver and instead picturing him behind the counter of a gas station in Dog River, Saskatchewan, also known as one of the settings for Corner Gas, the iconic comedy series turned movie turned animated series, the last of which is now entering its third season. But the road to Dog River includes some significant stops in Vancouver and Brent is a mainstay, nay, a cornerstone, nay, a monolith of the Vancouver film and television scene. We claim him. He is ours. P.S. I know Brent and Corner Gas are understandably and indelibly linked, but I must also recommend the mystery movie that Brent wrote and starred in, No Clue, directed by the inimitable Carl Basai. So today we're going to dive deep into Brent's origin story, which I imagine involves comic books and graphic art and Saskatchewan and stand-up comedy. We're going to examine the lightning in a bottle that was and is Corner Gas and why it works so darn well in animated format. And we're going to play a spirited round of Favorite Things, where Brent will tell us all about his favorite things. Mr. Brent Butt, Esquire, Icon, Monolith, Human Man, Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Uh, thanks, sir. I wasn't listening. Could you do that again? No, I'm <laughs> kidding. Of course. That was a wonderful introduction. Thank you. Thank you. Um, would you I'm, I offer everyone the chance to rebut. Um, is there anything that you would like to rebut from, your, from that intro? I'm trying to think. No, I was happy with all of it. I can't think. I'm not a particularly contrarian individual. I tend to roll with things. This is one of my, my weaknesses as an individual is uh, I tend to uh, buy into whatever I heard last. Uh, That's one of my problems. So if there's like a, a political issue or a cultural issue, a sociological issue, I'm like, yeah, yeah, what they said, make a good point. And then the other person rebuts and I'm like, oh, that is, a, yeah, no, he does have a good point there. I can't I imagine that's good mentally. for a showrunner, though. I mean, don't you have to be the, the voice of, voice of well, God? on high well you do have to be that but you also have to be um it's important when you're working in tv and film it's such a collaborative it's such a team sport you have to be able to i mean i am a believer that you need to have somebody to make the final decision and that person is me on our show but uh i'm always open to hearing the input of these other incredibly talented people who are bringing a ton of stuff to the table you'd be a complete and utter buffoon to not um, uh, 
take advantage of their abilities, their skills and abilities. And I'm not, I'm only about 72% buffoon. I'm not a uh, uh, utter total buffoon. Not totally lost to buffoonery. Yeah. Um, okay. Before we get funny and before we go into your origin story, uh, I, I do want to take a moment to acknowledge the fact that we are in the midst of a global pandemic and all of what? the interviews. I'm this sorry. Are you news. hearing it? Are you hearing it from me first? I'm so I'm so sorry news. to break it to you. Yes, global pandemic. We're in the nine thousandth month of it. Um, but every every interview that I've been doing during the pandemic, I do ask from my heart how you're doing. So I ask you, how are you doing, Brent? I'm doing all right. I'm feeling. Um quite blessed actually because uh we're fortunate in that the show we're doing is animated so we were able to keep in production we were able to you know we had to pivot and make some changes and tweaks but whereas many other shows had to literally shut down for a while yeah we were able to stay in production and so i count my blessings with that i had a lot of stand-up work uh that had to go on the shelf but i have the 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 show to fall back on whereas a lot of my friends and compatriots who are still um you know just greasy nightclub comedians like we always have been uh a lot of you know all of a sudden 97 percent of their revenue was taken away so mm. um i'm feeling very very blessed and i was able to just kind of take the downtime i wrote a novel which is something i've always wanted to do and I, and so i thought if not now when yeah. So I've completed a novel and just hung, spent some time hanging out at home and working on season three of Corner Gas Animated. Wow. Uh, can you give us a little, a little bit of a hint about what the, I, because I don't want spoilers. This is no, I, yeah. we don't like spoilers here, but like what is a Brent Butt novel? Like what's that look like? It's surprising apparently because I forgot to tell one of the people, like I sent it out to beta readers to get their two cents and give notes on. And one of the guys, I forgot to tell him that, uh, like he just expected it was going to be some kind of comedic romp. And it's really, it's a, it's a rather dark and violent psychological thriller that I wrote. It's set against the backdrop of stand-up comedy, but it's not a comedic book. It's, there's funny moments in it because the people are funny and they say funny things, but it's a dark, gritty uh, and violent psychological thriller. And I forgot to tell him that. <laughs> and so he was just reading through. And the first chapter, there's a guy getting quite brutally murdered. And he's like, wait, waiting for the funny twist to rue on that. And it never comes. But he, he did enjoy the book a lot. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm oddly terrified right now. And also, please, as soon as it's, as soon as it's ready to be published, uh, let us all know how we can get our hands on that. Yeah, I'm hoping it will be published. We're, we're my manager's talking to people right now, so we're hoping it'll get published and out into the world. If not, you know, I mean, I'm prob- I would probably do the self-publishing route if needs, if needs must, as mm-hmm. uh, Charles Dickens would say. But I'm hoping to go the traditional route because I just love the notion of having a, a book uh, traditionally published. Traditionally published on shelves and bookstores everywhere. Um, Okay. You want to, let's do some time travel. I want to get into it. I love, I, you have an amazing Spider-Man pinball machine behind you. I know you love an origin story. I want to hear yours. So let's go back in time. First of all, what is your time travel vehicle of choice? Uh, Something comfortable. I would say like an an old, old school easy chair, you know, like an old, like a lazy boy from the early seventies. Uh, but like really lived in, like not even a brand new one. Yeah, but yeah like, I don't you know, want a brand yeah. new one. Yeah, okay. So one we're that in... a, a fat guy had before me and I bought secondhand from him. That, that sounds like a dream. Okay, so that is, that's, 
the first time I've gotten into this time travel device. So I wanted, I want to go back to when you were nine, because I have a nine-year-old and it seems like just from my observations of living with this crazy, passionate person, it seems like nine is a very pure age. You know, you have a, for at least in my daughter's case, clear idea of what she likes and what she wants to be and what she doesn't like. So let's, let's go back in time. You're nine. Where are we going? What were you like? I was very much kind of like what I am now in, in, in a lot of regards. I, I was pretty outgoing. I liked trying to be funny with my friends and buddies. I was, uh, but I was pretty mellow. Um, my, uh, I'm the youngest of seven kids. So I, uh, the, the brother before me was a real Yahoo. I just got off the phone with him before talking to you actually. And he was a real, like a r- troublemaker, whatever the rules are, I want to break them. He was yeah. just a wild man. Right. <laughs> and I was just not. And I remember saying to my mom one time, cause she was t- telling Lloyd how difficult a child he was. And I said, was I difficult at all? And she said, "Ugh, you just sat in the corner and grew. <laughs> so that was me. I sat and drew and wrote. I liked stories and superheroes and, um, you know, monsters. And, you know, I, I liked, I liked uh, living in my imagination a lot. Yeah. Um, so are we, we're in Saskatchewan then? Yeah, I was born and raised in Tisdale, Saskatchewan. Yeah. And so were there, a, like, where were you uh, getting inspiration for your stories? Like, are we going to comic book stores? Are we going to the movies? Are we watching TV? Like, you yeah, know, those were the three big ones for sure. Yeah. I was definitely a comic book geek and I, I fell in love with superheroes at a very early age. And then I would always, I would do chores to get a quarter from my father because uh, when I was a kid, you could buy a, a new comic book for a quarter. Mm. So I would usually do, here's what I would do almost every Saturday. I would, I would have done enough stuff that he would give me a buck. Yeah. So with that dollar, I could get a comic book and a bottle of Coke. And then I would try and uh, buy some manner of toy with the other 50 cents. But it was always a Coke and a comic book. And that was my Saturday. I would go home with my ice cold Coke and uh, my new Spider-Man or Hulk or whatever. And yeah. you know, it was a lovely summer Saturday and read the comic. Um, so you're a Marvel guy. More so than DC. I, I, I enjoyed them both. Here's the other thing that I was kind of in a, in a blessed scenario. In my hometown, is one of the first paper recycling plants. It was called the Fripp Fiber Form. And they, it was one of the first places that recycled paper to use in other things. And they mainly oh. made egg cartons out of them. So they had this, it was like an acre, fenced off acre of just bundles of paper and magazines that had been, that they had collected. And amongst them were thousands and thousands of comic books with the cover taken off because the cover was a different kind of paper that you couldn't recycle. So the covers were all torn off, but it's where I first saw the X-Men, where I first saw Daredevil. Um, I had issue number one of the X-Men, but with no cover. Wow. So I'm sorry, did you, were you invited to go and peruse the stacks or did you hop the fence and go like harvesting comic books? Yeah, there was a low fence. We would shimmy in there. It was also our first foray into uh, pornography, too, because there would be like uh, gentlemen's magazines in there. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's uh, where most of us saw our first uh, bare naked lady, you know, yeah. as well as. But that held very little uh, interest when compared to Spider-Man fighting the vulture. You know, that was far more interesting. Oh, heck yeah. 
And then uh, a tragedy uh, actually happened where a couple of kids were in there and they were smoking and the joint caught fire, a huge fire in the bale of, uh, I mean, the kids were okay. Oh, Nobody okay. got hurt, but the building and uh, an incredible amount of damage. And they ended up installing very high fencing after that. And, those, oh. and the, the days of us shimmying up to get a, a peek at a naked lady and watch Spider-Man fight somebody were, were done. But I had been... Um, by that time, I was fully engrossed in the superhero world. Yeah. No, you, you mentioned that you were also the kid who was also always trying to make his friends laugh. Yeah. Um, who were some of your early comedy influences? You know, and like, were you the funny guy in the family or were you from a funny family? From a funny family. So like my, my family was definitely the biggest influence because, you know, we grew up with not a lot of resources. We didn't have, there was a lot of kids and, and dad didn't make a ton of money. And so we really, you know, and we had two channels on TV. That was all there was at the time. So you got to entertain yourself. And my brothers and sisters and both my parents could always make me laugh. And it was a big part of growing up was just trying to crack each other up and trying to score on each other, you know, like uh, dunking on each other and roasting each other. Uh, always you had to keep it above board. You had to keep it clean or there was hell to pay because um, mm -hmm. my parents were both kind of churchy to, to some degree, one more than the other. But uh, so we had to keep it above board and, you know, you couldn't be malicious with your roasting, but it all had to be done in fun. But it's where I kind of learned comedic phrasing and, and I, I remember being the youngest kid. I remember the feeling of being able to make my older brothers and sisters laugh. If I could ever do that, that was such a, a, a rush because you knew it was legit. They wouldn't give it up for, for nothing. Yeah. So that was always a good feeling. Like a comedy club audience. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> they, they, they laugh if it was funny and then they'd stare at you blankly if it wasn't. Yeah. Um, so... As, as a kid going into adolescence, you are, you know, they start asking you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you have to start making some plans. What yeah. did you want to be when you grew up, especially being an artist and a dreamer and um, engaged in illegal activities, uh, stealing comic <laughs> books? <laughs> uh, no, we wouldn't even steal them. We would, for the most part, every now and then, but we would just sit there and read them. That's you so know, These pure. big bales of paper, oh. just sit there and read them and then go home afterwards. It's the purest it, story we've had on this podcast, really. <laughs> I really was. I, just, I was a good kid. I just sat in the corner and drew. Um, so for me, there was really only three things that I ever contemplated as, you know, a dream to do. I made the decision at the age of 12 to do stand-up comedy. That's when I first saw a comedian on TV. There, used, there, was a, there was a TV show that came out of Vancouver, The Alan Hamill Show, which later became the Alan Thick show. It was a daytime uh, talk show. Whoa. He, you know, just like the Tonight Show, but in, in, in the daytime. And they would have comedians on there two or three times a week. It was the first time I'd ever seen that. I'd seen comedic actors and sketch acting and people being funny, but um, just a dude walking out and talking and being funny. I'd never seen that before. And his name was Kelly Monteith. He was kind of a staple of the comedy scene in the... Uh, 70s and 80s and he actually went on to uh i think he's from the southern states he went on to have quite a career in the uk but anyway kelly monteith was the first guy i saw and he was in a tidy suit and he looked like a million bucks and he was funny and cracking people up and i thought i had no idea that was a thing and when he was done i walked out and i told my mother i want to be a stand-up comedian 
Yeah. And, and that was my life path from, from that point on. The only other two things I ever considered was uh, being a goalie in the NHL. That was a goal. But I was, I was savvy enough to realize or had enough wherewithal to, to by the time I was 14, I realized I don't have what it takes. <laughs> if I practice morning, noon, and night for the rest of my life, I might be able to play AAA hockey somewhere. Um, so I let that dream go and just played hockey for fun from that point on. And actually, I had to choose between hockey and a job. I was offered a really good job that would prevent me from going on the road and playing hockey. Hmm. And I was like, well, hockey's not my future. So I took the job. But, uh, and then the other thing was to draw comic books. Um, and I, I sent in a submission when I was probably 13 or 14 to uh, Marvel. Got a lovely, nice little rejection letter back with Spider-Man on the envelope. Oh my gosh. Um, and you know, they, it was encouraging, told me to keep at it, told me they thought I had talent. That must have been amazing to pull out of the out of the mailbox, though, and be like, "I got mail oh, from wow. Marvel, Spider Man." <gasps> it was. You know the weird thing. I've thought about this a few times. Um, I was very, very excited to get the envelope, but the moment I touched it, I knew it was like I knew it was basically a rejection slip. I don't know what I was mm. thinking that they were going to say. Yeah, pack up, thirteen year old, and move to New York. We'll hire you tomorrow. <laughs> but I. You know, I guess when it was out in the world, I was thinking they might, uh, you know, scout me or something, like put me on their radar and check in. And when I touched that envelope, I knew it was not that for whatever yeah. reason. But it didn't really dissuade. I was still excited to open it up, and it was like what I thought it was going to be. Um, and it's funny. I ended up publishing a comic book years later when I was 19 or 20. Um, a buddy of mine, Colin Alexson, who actually lives out here in Vancouver now, he, uh, he and I published a comic book. I came up with this idea for a comic book called Existing Earth, and I told him the story, and he expanded the story into, so it could be a thing with legs that could go on forever, and we ended up, we started a publishing company, and we did two issues before I learned my first valuable business lesson, which was undercapitalizing a venture. Uh... Well, at least you'll learn that lesson early, yeah. you know, rather than, than later on. Usually I, I end my interviews by, by asking, you know, about what like advice you would give to some, to a, a younger version of yourself just starting out or what, what, what do you think a younger version of yourself would think of where you are now? But I want to, I want to ask now while, while uh, younger Brent is, is, is on our minds, you know, like, what do you think you'd think of, of this life that you've built for yourself? I think he would, he would dig it. I think he would be, I think he would sign off right now. Like if you said to 12 year old Brent, this is where you're at, at 54. I'm at that age where you're not quite sure how old you have to count. You got to do the math. Yeah. 54. Um, I think he'd say, yeah, I'll take that. I mean, I'm balder than I thought I'd be, but Hey, a guy can have hats, right? Yeah. (laughs) He would see the pinball machine. Yeah. He would see that I'm indoors. I, I've obviously made enough money to have a home mm-hmm. and I'm clearly well fed. So I, and, and if you said to him, you know, this was all spoking off of touring the country, doing stand-up comedy um, and making TV and movies, he would say, yeah, let's, uh, I'll sign that deal right now. 
Fantastic. So let's talk a bit about, about stand-up then and some of your, your, your first foray into, into, that, into that world. Like, what can you tell me about, you know, what your, what your comedy looked like back then and some of the, uh, the mistakes that you might have made along the way? Well, the very first time I did stand-up proper was in high school. I tried it like at a high school variety night and it went quite well. And they asked me to do it again at drama night. So I did it twice in high school and it, it went well enough that I was encouraged to, you know, it, it didn't knock it off my radar of things that I want to try to do it for as a living. Yeah. And so when I was 21, a, a club opened up in Saskatoon, a comedy club opened up in Saskatoon and I was going there to continue this publishing foray for the comic book with my buddy Colin who was attending university in Saskatoon. So I, I moved to Saskatoon. I took a job selling advertising for a magazine and uh, we worked on our comic book at night and I started doing stand-up Thursday nights, uh, amateur night. And um, my first my first spot on amateur night at that club is probably still the best show I've ever had. I always say it's been 30 years of chasing that 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 show. It, really? it just clicked and just yeah, it was off the charts. And I got I got an encore. They had me come back on stage and uh you know, show 2, 3 and 4 weren't like that. But yeah. that first one uh went so well that I was fully ensconced. I was never going to not try and get that feeling again. That is, that's wild. You don't always hear that. I mean, isn't yeah. this, isn't the story usually like, you know, you, you, you get up there in front of the bike and then you, you, you blank and then you have to like, you know, be cajoled to co to come back. And that's, that's, that, uh, that's incredible. But it's not, it's not particularly uncommon though. I, I've heard, there's a lot of comedians tell the story that you just told, but there are several others who have told me the same thing. They're like, yeah, my first show was awesome. And then, two, three, and four were pretty bumpy. And then you'd have the fifth show would be good again. And so it would, it would rekindle the fire. Yeah. And so as long as you don't go too long between good shows, you're always encouraged. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it went well for me right off the bat. So I was, I was fortunate that way. And it's just, I, it, when I got on stage there, I felt like it was something I had been training to do all my life. You know, I felt like I had been just lifting weights for eight years hmm. and now somebody had said to me okay see if you can pick that up yeah so what was your early like how would you characterize your early comedy then it was very i mean it was very conversational observational um very of the time this was the late 80s so it was very kind of have you ever noticed that uh, you know like a lot of that kind of thing yeah but i would also tell stories about growing up um, I had a fun and funny relationship with my mom. And so I would tell mom stories mm -hmm. and a couple of dad stories. And just, it was a, it was a fair amount of material about life in a small town versus being in a big city. That was kind of the meat and potatoes of it. Yeah. Um, how do you think that your time on the comedy circuit, and as you said, you still, you still often, I mean, in the before pandemic times, you would still do stand-up. But how do you think it informed the work that you do in television? Because I would, I would imagine, as somebody on the outside, that there, 
completely different beasts. And yet I'm like, there's got to be some kind of, you know, one must power the other in yeah. a certain way. Absolutely. They, yeah. they, they are different beasts, but you're, you're right. Your instinct is absolutely right. I, 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 the way I look at it is everything else that I do in my life, every other creative endeavor spokes off of stand-up. It spokes off of me having a history of getting up in front of people and, um, you know, trying to be funny professionally and crafting that, crafting phrasing and crafting, you know, what words to use, what words work well with others and what words uh, can kneecap a joke and, and what is it that gets in a way, you know, that, that's one of the things that people don't understand about comedy. A, a big part, a massive part of comedy is interpreting and anticipating what's going to get in the way of the comedy. Mm. More so than just what is funny, it's more like, a good comedian can look down the road and say, get rid of that. That'll be bumpy. That'll put it in the ditch. Get rid of that'll distract them. Get that out of the way. Get, a good comedian can survey the landscape and pick the things that need to get, you need to get gone in order for yeah. the joke to work. And then the joke has its own uh, life, but that's a big part of it. And so when I, when I went into television, my first forays really of pr producing television were here in Vancouver. So I moved to Vancouver in 93 and I met a television producer here named Michael French who um, I'd come to Vancouver from LA and this, this local producer, Michael French used to book comedians to help him do funny shows out of, he would call his manager in LA and, mm -hmm. and he would tell him what comedians to hire for these shows, usually American comedians. And so Michael called down to LA said to this manager, uh, I'm doing another show. Who do you recommend? And the manager's name is Jimmy Miller. He said, uh, well, actually, like a really funny dude just landed in your lap like a couple weeks ago. His name is Brent Butt. Here's his number. Give him a call. See if he'll take the gig. And so he did. And I met with Michael and we started a, a very fruitful working relationship. And he's the guy who taught me how to, he was a guy who taught me what was involved in putting a TV show together. Hmm. Even though they were one-offs, and later I learned how to do a series, that was a whole different animal. But the, my first experience editing, writing scripts, shaping existing material to make it better, um, all those kind of things, and a little bit about financing and funding, because um, he, he was incredibly patient letting me pick his brain. Um, that's where I learned what was involved in kind of crafting comedy into TV comedy. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you, you spent some time in LA. Um, I love America. I love it so much. And, but there are great cultural divides between our, our two countries. And one of the, way, the areas that we see, you know, the, the differences is in comedy and what makes us laugh and the kind of like, what, what would you describe? Like, do you agree with that? And then too, like, what would you describe as the difference between like the Canadian sensibility of comedy and the American sensibility of comedy? I don't know that there is really one. I think we, particularly as Canadians, we like to, we like to dig our heels in and say, this is us. This is what makes us us because we have this inherent, you know, we spring forth as the progeny of the two hugest cultural machines of the last 400 years, right? Mm -hmm. The UK and the States. So the UK, we sprung forth from there 
And then we have the U.S., the, the largest cultural machine the world's ever seen right on our border. And so we're wedged between these two. And it, at some point, we've, we decide we need to hang our hat on something so we can be individual. Obviously, Canada, because we're a young nation, we're, we're kind of like teenagers right now. We're at that yes, point we now are. where we're like, we don't need our parents. We don't need to hang out with our big brother. We're not trying to impress anybody. We're going to start doing our own thing. That's, I feel like that's where Canada's at right now. We're like 14. Yeah. So we're like, yeah, hey, whatever. <laughs> what you think oh, of us is a- not so important all of a sudden. <laughs> I was such an obnoxious 14-year-old, and <laughs> I think you might be onto something there. <laughs> so, but I mean, I don't think... I think there's more difference between two individuals from the same city than there are, uh, you know, just this, this binary differential between Canadian and American or Canadian and British sensibilities. I think that there are, you know, there, there are American comedians that are so similar to me in terms of sensibility and even delivery and, and everything compared to other Canadians who are very, very different from, from how I am. So, and even it's such a part of who we are Canadians regionally, because there's so few people across this giant chunk of dirt, Hmm. we make a big deal of our regions. But, and so people often ask me, even in Canada, they say like, is there, what's the difference between comedy in the East coast is comedy in the prairies or whatever. And uh, I just, if there is any difference, I haven't been able to see it because I can be at the same club in Fredericton doing two shows on a Friday and the two shows, those two audiences could not be more different from each other. Mm-hmm. Right. So I always say whenever you get 200 individuals together, that creates a brand new animal that's never existed before. And you yeah. don't know what it likes. You don't know what, how can you get it to roll over so you can scratch its belly? Yeah. It, what does it hate? You don't know. So just inherently by the fact that these individuals get into this room together, that's a whole new chemistry that's never existed before. Um, how do you, you mentioned animal and then I immediately went to, to monster and, and thinking about like, how do you, how do you as a comedian deal with a room that is just, just not there for you, you know, where, and they are just there and they are just going to attack everything or they're not going to laugh or how do, <laughs> how do you deal with Cause I'm, I'm assuming like that, that, that must happen once yeah. or twice. Yeah, it happens. You try to make it happen a lot less than it doesn't happen, but it does happen. There's no getting around it, especially when you're first starting out. You're playing a lot of sketchy rooms where they, you know, half the time they don't even know it's comedy night. You show up and they're like regretful. They're like, oh, I agreed for there to be comedy. They're like, God damn, you know. <laughs> so it's like bad from the get go. <laughs> and they have you standing up in the corner, there's no stage. I've had places where they, they put plywood across a pool table and you stand up in the pool tables and now everybody hates you because they can't play pool Oh my god! and you're trying to be funny. <laughs> you know, it's such a recipe for disaster. You're lucky you don't get your knees broken. So in those situations, I mean, it never really bothered me much. The only situations that bothered me were the, the few occasions. There were a few occasions where I felt like, okay, this is going to go physically sideways. This is going to, uh, there's going to, physical harm is going to come to me. But if it was just a case of, you know, you're an idiot, we don't think you're funny, shut up, that kind of thing. Well, you could, I could roll with that. I was funny yesterday. I got laughs yesterday. I'll probably get laughs tomorrow. I can take it on the chin tonight. So 
you know, it's a, it's, it's kind of about perspective. And, and also, you know, I always looked at it like, no matter how bad my job goes, you know, I'm not, I'm not walking out of a, out of a, you know, I'm not walking out of a surgery explaining to some parents that I wasn't able to save their child. Right. It's when people go, I don't know how you do that. I go, man, that's like a hundred million occupations and situations I would put ahead of people not laughing at your joke. You know, Mm. I remember I had a vice, a vice cop say to me one time in in Toronto, because I, the gal that I was dating, her friend was dating a vice cop. And I remember him saying to me, he said, well, I would never have the nerve to do what you do. And I was like, didn't you, didn't you kick in the door to a crack house today? Like (laughs) if things go bad at my job, I'm not going to take a shotgun blast to the chest, you know? (laughs) I'll just get them tomorrow. That's oh man. So it, it, it's a it's kind of about having that perspective, and it's it's unpleasant to bomb, but actually, if it's if the bombing is going bad enough, absence of the threat of physical violence, if the bombing is going bad enough, it actually can become quite amusing. There have been times when I was just like, I cannot believe how bad this is going, and you start <laughs> just riffing on that. You start riffing about how shitty it's going, and and. <laughs> Sometimes that'll even turn it around. The, yeah. the, the fact that you're recognizing this isn't going well can can be the thing that tips it for you. It brings it back. Amazing. Um, I'm sure that's very helpful to to people who um well who who as soon as the COVID is over, they want to get back into into stand-up, you know, do some amateur nights and stuff. So you can always turn it around. Um, okay. Let's talk about the corner gas of it all. Um, six seasons and yeah. wait, is it six? Is it six seasons or are we now like on season nine? Cause there, when I watched quarter gas animated, it does feel like I'm watching quarter gas just with like well, that's good. That's more high praise, more fa- like slightly more fantastical sequences or in some cases really fantastical sequences that we would have gotten, you know, on, on the live action one. Um, but yeah, so six seasons movie, and now we're, we're starting season three of the uh, Corner Gas Animated. But I want to go back in time. So we're, we're in the sure. easy chair again. And let's talk about the, um, the inspiration for, for Corner Gas. And I'm assuming there's a little bit of you, a little bit of you in your own backstory in in the 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 concept you know at like at what point did you realize that that you know being from saskatchewan that a saskatchewan story would work so well in in a comedy form i i was never sure that it would until it did really um it kind of springs like if you really want to roll the easy chair back to when i was quite a little kid with our two tv channels i was always it always puzzled me that none of these shows that I was watching, there was like none from Saskatchewan, hmm. not a one. There were hardly any from Canada. And if they were, it was always uh, Toronto or sometimes Vancouver. Saskatchewan didn't exist in, in the cultural horizon. And it stuck out to me as a little kid. I was like, I wanted to hear somebody talk about where I was. Partly because I was smitten by show business. I was drawn to it. And so I wanted to see somebody acknowledge it, you know, because that would somehow tie me to show business. Yeah. And it actually wasn't until there was a episode of Bugs Bunny where Daffy Duck said, said the word Saskatchewan. 
and it stuck out like I mean, like Daffy Duck knows where I live. Somehow, it's the the weirdest way to be validated <laughs> is for Daffy Duck to not be able to remember the word sesame and say sarsaparilla, Saskatchewan, say like a bunch of other S words. But anyway, um, so that was the kernel that somehow was was sitting in my subconscious, and then when. Um, Probably at around the age of 30 or so, I, was, I, I had an idea for a movie, and I started writing a movie script. And it was a type of story that could take place anywhere. So I thought, why don't I make it happen in small town Saskatchewan? So I had the character. He worked at a gas station. And um, anyway, I was, as I was writing the story, it kind of wasn't panning out. The story, I felt, wasn't big enough to be a movie and it, it didn't have the legs. And it was clear to me as I was writing, it was, it was becoming a salvage operation. I was trying to fix this story and it mm. just wasn't working. But what was working were these characters. The dialogue between the characters at the gas station as their paths cross um, or as the character was pumping gas with somebody out at the pumps, that dialogue came easy and felt good and the jokes came easy and it all felt good. And I thought, well, maybe that's what this should be. It should be just something smaller and rely on these characters and dialogue. <clears throat> and kind of concurrently, I had been wondering what my life would be like if I hadn't got into stand-up. What the hell would I be doing if I hadn't pursued comedy? And I thought, well, I would probably just be still hanging out at the gas station in my hometown. <clears throat> so those two thoughts were kind of coming together at the same time. And I wrote a treatment for a half hour sitcom called Corner Gas, where it just took place at a gas station, a few locals in this tiny farm town. And then in typical rent butt fashion, uh, having written and purged it creatively, I set it aside and did nothing with it. Years went by, a few years, three years maybe. And I get a call from a director I know named David Story, who had directed a, a stand-up show for CBC that I had done. And he said to me, I'm in Vancouver, let's go for coffee. I didn't know him that well, but he looked me up, said, let's go for coffee. And he said, I was talking to the network, I pitched some ideas for shows, and they weren't interested. But through chatting, they said they wondered if you had any idea for TV shows, because I was coming off, I had done a, a stand-up comedy show called Comedy Now, for CTV, and mm -hmm. I was nominated for a, a Gemini Award for Best Comedy Performance. So I think I was on their radar right at this time when they were looking to develop a new TV show. So they said to David Story, they said they mentioned that they wondered if I had any ideas. He said, "Well, I know Brent. I'll ask him." So I said to him, "Well, I kind of wrote this thing for a TV show about a gas station in Saskatchewan, but I can't imagine they would be interested in that." And they told him about it. He said, well, it sounds interesting to me. I'll run it by them and see what they think. And then he got a hold of me and he said, flush it out because they are interested. They want to see some paper on it. So I flushed out. There's a bit of a miracle story with that too, if you want to. I don't know how we're doing for time. Here's oh. the weird thing to me. So this is the weird miracle moment in all of this for me. So I leave that coffee meeting with David's story and he said, you know, see if you can flush that thing out some more. So I go back to my apartment and I was living with somebody at the time who was kind of, uh, I don't know if technically a hoarder, but close to it, if not. There, <laughs> our apartment was a, just a, a mass of things. Yeah. And so, and it had, been, it had been a long time since I'd seen 
this you know, three and a half inch floppy disk that I had corner gas, oh, had written corner gas no. in, right? So I looked at this mess and I said, man, where would a guy even begin to start looking for that disk? And I moved one bit of clothing that was on the floor with my foot and there was the disc was a corner gas. Right no, there. it the, wasn't. Yeah. <gasps> the very first thing I touched that I moved, the disc was on the floor, corner gas. And I just got, I got a chill and I picked it up and I said, okay, this is okay, maybe meant to be. Wow. So I plugged it into the computer, took, you know, eight minutes for the thing to fire up and then... <laughs> Uh, and I flushed it out and I, I, I polished it and made it funnier and, and made it a, a treatment for a show. And we gave that to the network and then they wanted to go into meetings after that. Wow. Pretty so, cool, how, right? so of the, uh, it is miraculous. Um, I just, I, I love how many things also happen to you, you know, like you have the idea and then it just sits there and then somebody has to come and like pull it out of you yeah, typical and out from your laundry. Uh, yeah. So how, so of the characters that we have grown to love, you know, and are now iconic and are now an animated form, um, like which ones were there in the earliest floppy disc edition? They were all there. They were there, all there. There was, there was one who wasn't my, when I first wrote it, um, the scenario was that there was uh, the gas station guy who had just taken over from his father who retired and sold the kid, the gas station, the, the mother had passed away oh. in the scenario. So it was, I, the, the notion was that the, this mother was kind of the grounding force that kept this uh, lazy, mellow kid and the cantankerous father from warring all the time. And with her gone, now they were going to be at loggerheads all the time. That was kind of the notion. But as I flushed it out, um, you know, the notion was with my stand up, I have these funny stories with me and my mother. And I thought I was going to be pulling from my life a lot more than I was. So I thought it's probably foolish of me to ignore this potential mine of material with this character and his mother, because I have that to rely on. Yeah. So I wrote the mother back in. And so gosh, so all I'm the other characters so grateful that you did. I'm really grateful that Would you have been did. a huge mistake to not have uh, Janet Wright. To not have Janet Wright. Step into and, that role. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I want to hear a bit about the feedback then from people in Saskatchewan. The, you know, the, 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 all the Brents who are in Saskatchewan who have now had the chance to see, you know, to grow up with a show you know, that takes place, you know, in the world in which they live. Like, what have you heard and what does their feedback mean to you? I'm assuming it's good feedback. Six yeah, seasons and a movie. I, I think their, uh, you know, their take on it was just kind of similar to what my own would have been. I think it was just kind of, they thought it was cool. They yeah. thought it was like, yeah, this is something we don't see. And here's, you know, here we are seeing ourselves on uh, a national stage and then went on to become an international stage. But it was just something I didn't see. And so, you know, the vast, vast majority of people uh, thought it was great. And then the the only kind of critique you would hear every now and then, and it was really like less than 1% of people would come up and they'd be, they'd be mad. They'd go, they'd say something like, you're, you're making us look stupid. And I'd be like, dude, your shirt's button crooked. <laughs> you don't need my help. You, you not getting it 
does, it doesn't fall on me, you know. But the vast, vast majority of people were, were just, just thought it was kind of cool. And it's like Eric Peterson said, you know, they, they don't get too wound up about anything. So nobody's, you know, they're not gaga or starstruck or over the moon about the fact that there's a show. They're just like, he said it was like you painted a house. And they're like, hey, I saw that house you painted. Good job. Nice work on that. That's how they talk to you about the TV show. They're, hey, I saw that, I saw that show. Good work. That was pretty funny. I like that. Okay. And then they keep walking, you know. I need to admit something. Um, when I heard that Corner Gas was going to be an animated series, I was like, "How's that gonna? How's that gonna work? Like, I like, and like, what what are they gonna like? What are they gonna do? You know?" And it is like the joy of my life, really, that I'm that like to to have been so surprised by how rad it is and how you know we get to see. I mean, my gosh, the Michael J. Fox episode from last season is still like what, yeah, one of my absolute favorites. You know, so t- let's talk about that transition from the the live action show to the animated show. You know, and um, the 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 ways in which I don't know, like, were there people who are like this doesn't make sense. And then they saw it and they're like, whoa, you know, and how you, you dealt with that or deal with people like me. Um. Yeah, no, that, there was, I mean, I was kind of one of those people. I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't thinking this won't work, but I was thinking, you know, this could not work. This could, whatever magic we had in the live action could so not translate. Yeah, I, I could see that being a real scenario. And so, as much as I wanted to get into this, I was also leery to just dive in before we knew it could work. And I, uh, you know, I, I just said, I don't, I don't want to, this isn't a, you know, it's not a pure cash grab here. This is, I feel like I'm the custodian of the, the legacy of this show for, mm. and I, I will be forever linked with the show, like it or not, you know, that's just the way it is. For the record, I like it. But um, that's just the hard facts of it. So I have to be the custodian of this thing. And I, I thought to myself, I'm not going to do another venture, especially after the movie. We felt that that was it. The whole idea was do the series. Wouldn't it be great if we could come back in a few years and do a movie? And that would be the cherry on top. Mm. That was the thinking the whole while. That's why I wrote, no spoilers, but that's why I wrote the movie uh, the way it is. It, it ends in a certain way, and it's like, well, now we can all say, you know, goodbye. It had a nice note to it. But the, the response to the movie was enormous. It's phenomenal. Uh, it broke records. Yeah. And so that caused the network to call up and say, listen, there's clearly still an appetite for this, these small town people getting up to their funny shenanigans. Um, do you want to do more episodes? But I didn't want to just do more of the same thing. I felt like that might be going backwards. And so we talked about the animated. And, but I, I didn't know if it would work. And I didn't want to do it if it wasn't going to work. So we, did a, we agreed to do a three-minute demo. And we took our time with that. I talked to a lot of different animation designers and animation people and had a lot of really smart, talented animation experts uh, let me picked their brain and they came and held my hand through uh, all the development part of it, like really established great guys like Chris Pern, um, who fortunately for us was a fan of the show. And so a guy like that, who normally you, you wouldn't be able to get him to be interested in a small 
three minute demo for a, a potential TV series. You'd yeah. be far too busy for that because he was a fan of the show. He was like, Oh, this would be great. You know? And he helped us out. And Josh Mepham here in Vancouver from slap happy. He was the guy who we went with his design for the characters ultimately. And he's the guy that I sat and worked with to kind of tweak and hone, but he's the one who came up with the look of the show. Um, we took our time with it. We didn't rush into it. And, uh, you know, we just, I, I wanted to, let's slow it down, do it right, and see how this three minutes feels. Mm. And um, I was in a fortunate position in that one of the guys who wrote on Corner Gas, his name is Norm Hiscock, he, he also wrote for King of the Hill. So here was a guy who understood our show yeah. and our comedic sensibilities, and a guy who understood Primetime Network animated adult animation. So I was able to go to him and say, listen, Norm, we're thinking about doing an animated version of Corner Gas. What would we do differently? How would we change the scripts? What would we write differently? He just stopped me. He said, don't do anything different. This show would be perfect to animate. Just write more scripts. This will work. And that emboldened me, a guy with that uh, pedigree and that knowledge of our show and the format we were about to transition into, saying this will work. He just, he didn't even, it wasn't, you know, wishy-washy at all. He said, this will work. So that emboldened us. And so uh, he helped develop, uh, uh, answer questions and, you know, sat down on us writing scripts and things. And um, yeah, just, you know, just it's took magical. our time with it. And, yeah. and we ended up, one of the things the network was saying was, why animate? And so I, I wanted in this three minute demo to show what we could do in the animated world that we couldn't do in the real world while still feeling like corner gas. Yeah. And so in corner gas, the live action, we would have these fantasy scenes. We would pop out and see what somebody was thinking. But in the real world, you're limited to what you can do, how much money and time you can spend to produce what is usually ultimately a six second joke, you know? So you're always hampered in real life by what you can get away with. So I thought, let's show them what we can do in these fantasy sequences that we couldn't do in real life. And so we had this Mad Max scene where Oscar was imagining a post-apocalyptic corner gas alone in the desert surrounded yes. by barbed wire and um, <laughs> all these dune buggy slash war machine slash farm equipment were rolling over the <laughs> dunes populated with scores of warriors. You know, that, that would have been like an $11 million scene. <laughs> and so when we did that and it worked so well and it felt very corner gas-ish, but just on a cool new scale that's when it that's really when everybody went yeah that that's cool well and i applaud you because as like as i say like the magic of the the magic's there you know and i actually i i, I dig it i love it so much um one of the many glorious things about corner gas animated is the fact that you're using a lot of vancouver voice talent including friends of the podcast peter kalamis vincent tong vina sud and omari newton and and I'm going to be referencing, I'm going to be reading you your own words from Twitter. Um, and uh -oh. we're seeing a far more diverse Dog River than yeah. the original. So on June 5th, you tweeted the following. I'm not going to do an impression, by the way. That's, 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 <laughs> I, I, I that's, that's the clamps. That, Corner Gas Animated features a more racist, racially, ethnically diverse Dog River than the original did. And I've had people complain to me about that. They were upset by it. We made a conscious decision to be more inclusive and reflective of the world at large, and that bothers some people. So 
I'm wondering why you made the decision, the conscious decision to be more inclusive and how you respond to the people who are bothered by that. Well, the, the decision came just when, I mean, you know, it, it never should have not been that, I think. Um, but you're kind of a product of the environment you grow up in, the situation you grow up in a little bit. And when we found ourselves doing the animated version, you know, years had passed. We've all kind of been made, I think, a little more aware. You know, we're all a little smarter and wiser. I shouldn't say all, but certainly I feel like I've grown a bit, matured a little bit as a, as a person. And, you know, you, you hear stories about what it means to be inclusive and, yeah. and what it means to people to see themselves represented. And when I was talking about being a little kid in Saskatchewan and saying, well, there's no Saskatchewan on here. Mm. When I heard people tell those stories about, well, there's nobody that looks like me or nobody from my background or nobody culture, it hits home. And I thought, you know, I've, I've been on a much more um, privileged platform <laughs> version of that kid. And I knew what that felt like. Yeah. So if there's something that we can do to, to uh, correct that so that there are young people watching and not feeling left out, it's the easiest thing in the world to not do that, right? So, so let's have some people of color and different cultural backgrounds and things, especially in this day and age, when you go to a small town, rural setting now versus maybe the late nineties or early two thousands, you're going to see more cultural diversity. Yeah. Um, immigration uh, people come here, they often settle in a smaller place where you know, you can, you can buy more for less with whatever money you were able to bring to this new land. Yeah buying a house in Toronto or buying a house in uh, Wire Beach, Ontario or something is uh, different, right? Yeah. So a lot of these small towns, it is more representative. And so anyway, we just all felt, and it wasn't just my doing, it was the whole team across the board. We were all there on the same page. It was almost automatic. We were just of the notion that, you know, we, we should see more uh, diversion, diversion in the, in the, people of Dog River because yeah. it's more like what the world is like. And we, we weren't showing a particularly accurate mirror up to the world, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I, for one, I love to see it. I really love to see it. Um, okay. And thank you for respecting my no spoilers. Um, although I'm sure you can't really give spoilers anyways, but what can you, what are you able to tell us about season three, about the journey of, of season three of Corner Gas Animated, or as I like to think of it, season nine of Corner Gas. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I really feel like we, we've hit our stride this season. Season one, we, you spend so much of it learning what you're doing. Yeah. And then season two, you end up adjusting the machine to adapt to the lessons you've learned. Mm. And season three, I felt like we really hit the ground running. We had learned what made the show work, what didn't, uh, what the proper pacing, I mean, every show has its own pacing, um, even if it's a version of an existing show that had its own pacing. And it's, it's similar, but there, you know, comedy is a, is a delicate, delicate little thing. So we learned all those lessons in season one and two, and even the cast is saying they feel like these episodes the season three are their favorite. They just feel like 
you know, and I, th- I think the cast had to adjust how they were acting as opposed to being in live action, doing it in front of the camera. Now just doing it, um, do, doing the voice acting, there's a bit of an adjustment there. Those first two seasons were us learning how to do it hmm. and, and building the assets that you require. Uh, you know, in, in season one, every, everything had to be built from scratch. But once it's built, you can bank it. And yeah. so season two, we were building less and could focus more on the creative. Season three, we were building even less and could focus a lot more on the creative. And, and we, you know, there are, uh, it's a great mix of people who wrote on the old show and people who are new to us. So it's fresh faces and eyes mixed with the, the people who know, know the show inside and out. So all that kind of mushes together into making season three be, it just feels good and it's funny and it feels right. Yeah. And you have some, I mean, I know last season you had uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and you had Michael J. Fox. And this season you also have some pretty darn impressive cameo appearances. Yeah, I think the cameos and the guest stars have always been a part of Corner Gas. It's something that people like. Yeah. When we, you know, if you're watching the show and suddenly, you know, some somebody pops in, Lloyd Robertson is on, you know, <laughs> something like that. And people get a kick out of it. They always have. Yeah. And so we wanted to carry that on. And in the animated world, it kind of, it's even a little easier because you just need their voice, right? So yeah. like in the case of Michael J. Fox, um, you know, convincing him to get on a plane and come to Regina from New York, especially with uh, uh, the what he's going through Parkinson-wise, his mobility is uh, restricted. So that would have been a very, very difficult sell. It wouldn't have happened. We couldn't yeah. have gone on. But you know, I, I hadn't met him and, um, I, you know, we were able to reach out. He knew who I was. He knew what the show was. His mom liked the show a lot. And so Aww. I was able to say to him, if we come to you, would, would you do this? And he agreed to do it. And, um, and so we hopped on a plane, went to New York, microphone and recorder. I went to his office. We, so I found myself in Michael J. Fox's office directing him in a scene and man, the, the the kid who who grew up watching Family Ties and loving the comedy of Family Ties, and sitting in the old Falcon Theater watching Back to the Future, to suddenly be that kid, but now I'm here with Michael J. Fox, directing him in a scene and having him ask me about the scene and would this be funnier than this? Uh, I mean, you can imagine how that hit home. When, oh. It also, it's a, it's an incredible episode as well um, because Brent is having dreams about that Michael J. Fox is. You know, the terrifying thing about that episode. There's something is, terrifying. Yeah. I'd, I had this idea for the story. Uh, the story department and I hammered it out, wrote the script. And then the realization that everything hinges upon it being Michael J. Fox. Like we, we couldn't slough this off on another celeb, right? So then it was like, oh man, we haven't even reached out. What if he won't do it? Then we have, we got to scrap this whole thing and write a whole other script. And the deadlines were there. It was panic city. It was a stupid move on my part. Usually I'm savvier than that. But uh, I was so jacked up with my Michael J. Fox idea that we just pounded it out. And uh, anyway, luckily it worked out because he agreed to do it. So. Okay. You ready to play some favorite things? 
Yeah, absolutely. I don't know how the game is played. Um, so the, the, the rules were made by my nine-year-old, and most of the questions come from her, too. Basically, I ask you what your favorite thing is, and then you have to say what the favorite right. thing is. Um, but the key is that you're not allowed to really think about it. You just have to say it. Good. You I ready? enjoy not thinking. Any opportunity to not think <laughs> for a couple minutes, I'll take. This is it. This is it. Okay. Favorite locally shot series? X-Files. Ooh. Favorite karaoke song? King of the Road by Roger Miller. Oh, good one. Favorite Followed country? closely, by the way, by 99 Red Balloons by Nina. The English, not German. I was going to say, do you know the, you know the German one? That's, that's very impressive, impressive Brent. Um, favorite comfort food? Uh, so many. Macaroni and cheese, I would say. Okay, so what are your thoughts on putting ketchup on macaroni and cheese? You good I'm not that? against it, but I don't do it myself. Yeah. But uh, it, it, I don't find it off-putting like some people do. Yeah. Cut up hot dogs in your yeah, macaroni and that's, cheese? That's yeah. Not, yeah that, I mean, it just escalates. Or the other thing, too, is like uh, mixed ground beef in with it. So you have Ooh. kind of like your own little hamburger helper yeah. type deal. We love, to, um, we love to deep, deep fry our macaroni and cheese into little macaroni and cheese balls. Um, I highly recommend that. That's awesome. Um, favorite thing to eat at craft services? Uh, cauliflower. I'm a big fan of raw cauliflower. It might surprise you to look at me, but uh, you would think it would be gummies or something. Raw but I love raw cauliflower. I love cauliflower in all its forms. And to just mow it. And the nice thing about it is it's not very popular. So there's always lots of cauliflower. Well, there was a time though when cauliflower was on trend and it became very expensive. And but like, do you use it to eat hummus or is it just like on its no. own? Pow! Just pop it down like popcorn. Love it. Little florets of cauliflower. I was not expecting that answer. You've you've actually you. I'm an enigma. Up. Yeah, you really are. Wrapped in a falafel. But at least a falafel has like some like hot sauce or hummus or other stuff in there. I mean, cauliflower doesn't need anything. I'm I'm shocked. <laughs> um, okay, favorite supervillain. Uh, the favorite supervillain probably the penguin. That was the one that came to my mind first. Was the penguin that kept coming back to him. Okay. I just find he's got a lot of character. And I'm, I'm a little jokered out. Joker's classic and everything, and I got nothing against Joker. I'm a little, at this point in time, jokered out. Yeah, understood. Understood. I'm also tired of seeing uh, Bruce Wayne's parents just die over and over and over yeah. again. And the yeah. pearls hitting, the, hitting the pavement in Crime Alley. You know, wouldn't it be going to happen to... in the alley in this <laughs> version? <laughs> this time. Oh, not again. <laughs> Favorite video game? Asteroids. Are we talking of all time? Of all time. Asteroids. Atari asteroids. Which, I, by the way, I shattered the world record unofficially in asteroids. Unofficially? Yeah. Can, we, can we make it official somehow? No. It's too late. They, at the time, it was, uh, the, the world record was 900,000. And I had uh, over a million. And I had 22 ships left when the arcade owner shut it down and said, we're leaving now. Yeah, yeah, was, why, what a missed opportunity for that arcade owner. Yeah. Could have had Guinness there, could have had a whole big spread. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. You, he you struck deserve me as a guy who, who didn't have a lot of forward thinking. <laughs> um, what is your, your favorite decade? Sorry, I have a specific voice I'm supposed yeah. to use. Favorite decade? Well, it would be a tie between the 80s and 90s. I, yeah. I, I, have, you know, I have a great love for both of them. Yeah. Don't make me pick. 
I'm going to make you pick. It's my show. Please pick. Please pick. <laughs> All right. I'll say the 90s then. Oh, I, I, don't, I don't approve of that answer. No, of course. If you like the 90s, you can like the 90s. Okay. I mean, it's very, very close. Yeah. I, I, I just personally, the 80s. I mean, I'm I, much I, older than you, though. So the 90s, to me, there's more, you know, I think I'm tied closer to the 90s than somebody yeah. of your age. Well, I was a teenager in the in the 90s, so that was when I was peak awkward, peak cringe. But the 80s, I mean, I drank so much water from a garden hose. Like that's like for me, that's what the the 80s were. Just just lots of sugar, like you get these big straws filled with sugar, Saturday morning cartoons, bowls of of sugar that was they were saying was cereal, and uh, and yeah, and water from a garden hose, the actual best. Okay, my and Well, you my grew up rich. It's clear you grew up rich. <laughs> that's what I'm getting from this conversation. <laughs> And uh, finally, favorite book as a child. And that includes comics books. Then probably the, the X-Men number one. I was fascinated by this group of people with individual skills and they were teenagers. And uh, I was quite, yeah, the beast, Hank McCoy. I Because I, I was kind of a squat little kid. So the way he was built and the things he could do, I related to Hank yeah. McCoy, the beast. I have... I, Next time we do this in the aftertimes of the pandemic, would love to host you in my in my uh, studio uh, because I have a whole big collection of uh, of original X Men toys, and um, I actually. If you decorate- follow me. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna say. I was gonna say. Every year, I have a Christmas tree that is specifically just—it's a blue tree, and it's all my X Men toys. So it's <laughs> nice. my, my festive X Men mess tree. If you uh, if you follow me on Instagram at Brent Butt, one of the things I like to do is I draw superheroes on my tablet using the Procreate software, mm-hmm. and it will record your pen strokes, right? So and play it back to you as a movie. And so then I will post. So the last one I did a few days ago was Silver Surfer, and it's, you just see the line drawing happen like a little movie coming together because it records your pen strokes. So that, oh, those, I do a lot of those. Well, I will. I will follow you on on the Instagram for that. Okay, the third season of Corner Gas Animated. Uh, it airs on CTV and uh, CTV comedy. CTV comedy, and um, you can check lo- local listings to find yeah. out the exact time because October we are 12th. a vast, vast country. So I know that there's all sorts of different times for that. Mr. Brent, but Esquire, Icon, Monolith, Human Man. It has been a pleasure. Where can our fans find you, follow you, celebrate you on the social media? <laughs> Twitter and Instagram at Brent Butt and YouTube, The Butt Pod, which was Did- my podcast. And now I, I do more video making than audio podcast. You've just reminded me when you said your last name. I got, I tried to promote an article that I wrote about you a couple of years. No, it was for season two and uh, Facebook wouldn't accept it. Because yeah. because of your last name. Yeah, welcome to my life. You think the stuff like that hasn't? Ha- you think you're telling me something I don't know? <laughs> I can't believe it. I, I anyway, shocking. I'm so sorry that happens to you. Um, no, it's all right. Thank you so much for your time today, and also just for just for making us laugh. We all need. I'm about to cry. I don't know why well, else I'm about to laughing. cry. Well, I just I just we all we I don't think we value. Um, laughter enough and i know for me and my self-care in this really challenging time i i've relied on 
on laughter to get me through. So thank you for all of the laughter. And uh, yeah, keep keep at it. Keep at it, Brent. You found your thing. Uh, I'm not going back to school. <laughs> I tell you that. All right. And to our listeners, you can you can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. You can follow us on the Twitter and the Facebook and the Instagram at YVRScreenscene. The YVR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Furminger. I am the only one to blame. And it's edited by Simon Furminger. Special thanks to Mariana Furminger for recording our Patreon ad and to Paul Furminger for technical support. Yes, Brent, we are a family business. And to Dane Devalet, who is not a Furminger for the original music. YVR Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic dynamic film and television scene and cut hiring professional performers makes all the difference to the success of any recorded media project did you know that the union of bc performers actra provides agreements for all budgets and types of productions including commercials tv series and movies feature films from big budget to canadian indies and student films animation series video games web series, and even streaming video on demand, like Netflix? For instance, our highly successful UBCP Actra Ultra Low Budget Agreement encourages and facilitates artistic collaboration between professional performers and independent producers who wish to produce very low budget or even no budget productions. No matter what your budget, we've got you covered, and you too can benefit from UBCP Actra's award-winning world-class performers. So, if you need actors, voiceover artists, stunt coordinators, stunt performers, singers, dancers, puppeteers, stand-ins, background performers, ranging across any age or demographic, then just contact us at UBCP Actra. Make your project the very best that it can be. This message was read by a UBCP Actra member. Go to ubcp.com for more information.